Our text tonight is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I think in the last two decades there has been a shift in the emphasis of ministry within the church. Prior to these, prior to that, the emphasis in the church was the ministry to the masses. And most of the training that the preachers got from seminary, most of the training that we received was how one could minister to the many. And the emphasis was upon a ministry to the masses. But in the 60s, our nation began to hurt and um, we experienced some very uh, difficult times in the 60s. We learned some new words. The, words. the word ecology became very prominent as we began to discover the problems of an overpopulated planet. And our youth began to scream for some uh, attention and began to seek uh, their identity in non-traditional ways, in the way they wore their hair and their dress. And the ghettos began to scream for help. And so in the cities, it was not uncommon for riots to break out. And when you watched the news on, at 6 o'clock or 10 o'clock, it was not uncommon to, to hear that another building had been burned. And we begin to learn new concepts and new ways of life, communal living and the occult and the macabre. It was a difficult time. And it seemed that during this time, the church slept because it was not prepared to minister one-on-one. -on -one. And the church received, you know, took a beating during that time and was called the dead establishment and a relic of a, of a, of a bygone and lost age. And so we learned some things, difficult lessons during those decades. We learned the importance of the individual. We learned how to minister one-on-one -on -one and discipleship became very prominent. We learned that when you do one-on-one -on -one evangelism, you do not settle for less than the best. As a matter of fact, you go back, back to the very roots of, of Christianity. For one-on-one -on -one evangelism or discipleship is at, the, is at the root or heart of New Testament Christianity. And it was not begun by an organization, but by a man. Now... Before we get into the text, I want to show you the root of this one-on-one -on -one approach. It's found in the third chapter of the book of Mark. I'd like for you to turn to that. Hold your place at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I want to read verse, um, 18, verse 13 and 14, verses 13 and 14 of Mark 3. And he, Jesus, went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority. And now the, 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 the genius of that is, the genius of discipleship is, that he called those that he wanted to be with him, that's discipleship. And he sent them out with authority to preach, and that's reproduction. And that same concept he gave to his disciples and to us 
in the Great Commission, and he said, All authority is given me in heaven and earth, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Now, it would be a different thing if that concept of one-on-one had disappeared after his ascension. But as a matter of fact, it was at the heart of Paul's evangelism of the world, was that one-on-one discipling of the nations. And that's what he's about in this passage that is before us. Now somebody said, when you go to read, when you read a missionary letter, you need to start from the bottom up. That might be true of just about any letter. As a matter of fact, most letters at the first, you know, are getting cutting through the kind of the, you know, the niceties, niceties and the small talk. And when you get down to the final paragraphs, you get to the heart of what that's, that man or person is trying to say. That, that may be true with every um, mission letter, that, that, that when you get to the end of it, you might really find what is on the heart of the man. But, but we make this mistake. When we come to 1 Corinthians and we go through 1 Corinthians 15, that tremendous theological statement concerning the resurrection, we close 1 Corinthians and say, well, all the important stuff has been said. But at the heart of this man... And, and what he wants for the world is found really in chapter 16. And there he gives us what I consider to be the six basic principles of discipleship. Now, what I want to talk to you about tonight is how to win the world, how to win uh, Durant, Oklahoma, how to reach the people of this world at the point of their need, and the six basic principles of that. Number one. The first principle of discipleship is this. Discipleship starts with one who knows where he's going. It starts with one who knows where he's going. Now look with me at verse 5. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. Now now skip to verse, um, uh, I believe 16 it is. Or no, it's verse 12. Verse 8. But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Discipleship begins with a man who knows where he's going. If you know where you're going and are not floundering, you're in a position to disciple someone else. Now, of course, what we're talking about is not geographically knowing where you're going, But if you have a plan and purpose for your life and you know what that plan and purpose is and you're not floundering about trying to find yourself, you're ready to disciple. Now the problem, the mistake many of us have made is that we have placed people in places of discipleship and ministry and teaching that do not know themselves what they are or where they're going. A few years ago, a man named Theo Timms wrote a book entitled... The Art of Leadership. And in this book, he lists 12 uh, qualities in a, in a leader. It's a purely secular book. But the second quality of a leader, he said, is this. People tend to follow one who has a dominant sense of direction and purpose. A quality which is pronounced in every leader is a strongly developed sense of purpose direction and destiny in life. He is one who knows with a greater than average conviction what he wants to do and where he wants to go. And then he concludes the statement with this. 
The world stands aside for such a man. There was such a man as that. He had a definite sense of direction and purpose. Part of, at po one point in his life, his friends tried to get him to go to Jerusalem, and he wouldn't. Near the end of his life, they tried to get him not to go to Jerusalem, and he did. He had a definite sense of where he was going and what he wanted to do. And there was this dominant theme that just keeps reoccurring in his life that, that centers around the statement, My time has not yet come. For here was a man that had a sense of direction and purpose from which he could never be diverted. And, he, and the world stood aside for him. I'm impressed and struck by the fact that one day a multitude tried to kill him and Jesus just walked through the crowd. Not only did they keep their hands off him, they stood aside to let him pass. Discipleship begins with a person who knows where he's going. Secondly, discipleship means getting permanently involved for an extended period of time. Now read verses 6 and 7 with me. And perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter that you may for some time... Perhaps I will spend the winter that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing. For I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. Discipleship flourishes. It means getting permanently involved for an extended period of time. Now I want you to notice two things that Paul did not say. The first thing he did not say was, I'm looking forward to coming to Corinth because I just love that city. I'm going to get some rays while I'm there on the beach. And I just love the streets and I love the atmosphere and I love the culture and I love the places to eat that are in Corinth. You see, the thing that impressed Paul was not the city but the people. Now I know some folks tonight who just desire and yearn to see their neighborhood be Christianized, but they have absolutely no concern for their neighbor. I know some folks who, are, who desire and pray that Southeastern's campus might become Christian and yet have absolutely no concept or concern about the person who lives across the hall or sits across the aisle. You, have you read the Gospel Blimp? The gospel blimp is a takeoff on that where a guy wanted to win his neighborhood, but he didn't even know the spiritual condition of his neighbor. And so what he did was he rented these guys who flew this blimp. And, and while their neighbor, his neighbor was in this, having this barbecue in his backyard, he got these fellas to fly over his neighbor's yard in the gospel blimp and drop tracks down on him, you know. And here was this guy out here doing this barbecue, and all these gospel tracks, you know, floating down just covered the barbecue. The guy was really concerned about his neighbor, but he wasn't concerned, uh, really concerned about his neighborhood, but not concerned about his neighbor. Discipleship means that I get personally involved in the life of somebody that I really care for. Second thing he did not say was, I'm looking to spend a couple of days in Corinth. As a matter of fact, he said, I'm not coming there just in passing. I want to, 
I want to stay with you. Now the word with there is the word that's found in John 1.1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Same word. It means to have an intimate relationship with. It means to have a face-to-face relationship. It is to have the kind of relationship with another you seek to win that Jesus had with the Father. A face-to-face intimate relationship. How much are you involved in the lives of people around you? I mean, the, the, the person who lives next door or the guy who lives down the hall in your dormitory, do y'all just kind of pass like ships in the night, just kind of bounce off of one another like ping pong balls? Win Arn is probably the authority in, 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 in church growth. He, he sent a paper out this week with a statement. I want to read it. You'll just listen carefully. It says, it's the theme of new hit records. It's the emerging hot topic on prime television. It's, it is playing a more important role in the lives of Americans than ever before. Indeed, experts suggest it may become the sociological signature of the 80s. It is friendship. Dionne Warwick's hit song, That's What Friends Are For, and Stevie Wonder's I Just Call to Say I Love You are but a few of the songs reflecting a new issue in our culture. Television is popularizing friends of all combinations, former Vietnam buddies on the A-team, high school friends who end up single parrots in Caton Alley, the support group in the Cheers Bar, the, the close friendship of Cagney and Lacey and their counterparts on Miami Vice, four older women friends exploring senior citizenship on The Golden Girls. These shows are among the most popular on television for a reason. They are about people who have something Americans want and need, perhaps more than any time in history, friendship. And what Paul is saying is, I want to come to Corinth because I want to be your friend. It's what people are hungry to have. It's what folks are crying for. Somebody that will reach across the aisle or the, or the, or the hall or the neighborhood to say, I really care about you and I am willing to spend as much time in your life as you need. There's a third basic principle of discipleship and that's found in verse 7. It is that discipleship is sustained by God's permission. If the Lord permits, it's sustained by, God's, by the Lord's permission. Now, it struck me that he did not say, if it is the will of God for me to disciple, because it is the will of God. He said, if the Lord permits, and when you chase that word down in the New Testament, it's always found in this context... It's where a person has a burning desire to do something and he's waiting for somebody to give him the okay. It is the picture of somebody with an intense, urgent desire to do something and he's just waiting for the opportunity to do it. It's kind of like this bumper sticker you see occasionally. Ask me about my grandkids. Now, I'm not about to do that. I, you, you won't ever find me pull over somebody has that car has that bumper sticker and, and you know and say tell me about your grandkids because I'm not prepared to listen to that you know story for a few hours. It, what that person is saying is I got something I want to talk about if you'll just give me 
the time. If you'll just give me the opportunity, I'm just burning up to share with you. I got something that I just have to keep a lid on. If you give me an inch, I'll take a mile. I'll tell you about something if you'll give me that opportunity. You know what happened to Durant, Oklahoma? If the people of this group, this, just this number of folks that are here tonight, just these college students, just these high school kids, just this adult group over here, just had that kind of burning urgency waiting for the opportunity to do it. You know, when you read the New Testament, you never hear Jesus say, fellas, I'll see you Friday at 8 o'clock and bring your notebooks and your scrolls and your pad and pencil and we'll have a little discipleship. But what you did see was a lifestyle teaching. So when birds flew over, he said, birds have nests. And while, little, while folks reached down to pick little flowers, he talked about Solomon in all his glory. And when somebody saw a fox run across the road in the light of their Z28, Jesus said, foxes have holes. And every opportunity that came, he seized upon it to share that which was burning in his heart. It's called teachable moment. If the Lord permits, seize the opportunity. Fourth, the fourth principle of discipleship is found in verse 9. I want to read it and then give you the principle. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, Paul said there are two reasons why I want to stay in Ephesus. One is, is because I'm having such a great ministry here, and the second is, I have a lot of trouble. Almost a paradox. The reason why I want to stay in Ephesus is because there is a tremendous ministry going on here, and I've got these folks that are giving me a hard time. Now, I don't know about whether you've ever pastored a church or not, but when I get into a situation where there's a lot of adversaries, I won't move on down the road. I'm going to tell you, look for a better spot. The Apostle Paul said there are two reasons why I want to stay, because it's tough and because I'm having great success. That leads me to the fourth principle of discipleship, and it's this. Discipleship flourishes in a context of guarded honesty. He was comfortable, he felt comfortable to share both his successes and his failures. Are you that honest? He felt comfortable in sharing both the things that were going great, and sometimes it's difficult for us to take a compliment. You know, sometimes I can take criticism easier than I can take a compliment. True story. Now, don't just start bombarding me with criticism. I, I'm not asking for it, you know. But it's not always easy to take compliment. And, I mean, it's not always easy to feel comfortable talking about your success. And no, not, nor is it com does it feel comfortable to talk about our failures. But the Apostle Paul was so transparent, he felt comfortable with both. Now, across the page, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, let me show you something you might not have known about the Apostle. He said, we, don't, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Now, now can you imagine the Apostle Paul saying, things got so tough in Asia that we wanted to die. We thought it would be better to be dead. We thought we contemplated suicide. We despaired of life. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul ever feeling that way? 
Can you imagine a man of his theological status admitting it? Do you think that it will disqualify you if you admit your humanity? No, it will qualify you for discipleship. That's what it'll do. A few years ago, some of you are old enough to remember, remember the streaking phenomenon. Everybody was streaking. Well, I didn't, but almost everybody was streaking. I mean, you go to graduation, somebody would streak. It's interesting to me that they had exposed themselves, but every time a streaker, when, when they'd be a streaker, he'd wear a mask. Do you notice that? It is interesting that, he, that the streaker was willing to expose himself except at the point of his identity. You want to keep that covered. And so do we. We don't want people to know who we are. We don't want folks to know that we have pain and heartache and despair and depression. We don't want to admit that we have failures and that we have adversaries and there are folks who don't like us. We don't want to admit that. Let me tell you something. Discipleship flourishes in the context of a guarded honesty where a person is willing to say, I have the same problems you have and I have some successes and I'm just human. The, the, the worst place you could put me is in the place where I'm not human. And one of the most difficult things that a pastor ever has to go through is to keep in perspective his humanity. Fifth principle. We got two, and that's it. Verses 10 and 11 are the, describe for us the fifth principle, and that's this that discipleship is strengthened through mutual support and equal respect. Now, look at verse 10. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work. Timothy, just like you accept me. Now, when Timothy comes to you, he's saying in Corinth, don't say to the poor guy, well, where's Paul? You know, as though you're second. He, you're, you think Timothy's second class. You respect him. Why? Because he's doing the Lord's work. You see, in the military, you salute not the individual. You salute the position, the rank. I mean, the guy might be a pure scum, but you still salute the rank. Now watch this. We don't have one pastor in this church. We have four. We have really five ministers in this church. One brand new minister. Now, now sometimes I, 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 know, I know this. And folks get sick, and, and you, all four of these guys could visit that person, and they'd say, well, where's the pastor? You know, well, they, they're there. These men, and I, and I don't, you know, nobody paid me to say this. And I don't, you know, I'm not the kind of person, I'm, I'm criticized for this a lot. I'm not the kind of person who does a lot of, you know, bragging on people, <laughs> really, or complimenting them publicly. 
But I want to take this opportunity. These guys are ministers. And they are called into a ministry the same as mine. And the same respect that a person should give what we might refer to as the senior pastor, the person who stands in the pulpit on Sunday, we ought to give to the other fellows who are here. They're ministers also. They're pastors. And, 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 the, and the work and the, and, and the thing goes on, the Lord's go, work goes on because these men are called just as the senior pastor's called. And discipleship begins there. Now when you need a pastor and I'm, you know, not available, if I'm watching, you know, the Celtics whip up on the, uh, on the Rockets, and, you, and one of these guys comes in my place, you know that the man God has sent to this church has come. All right, number six, and I'm through. Discipleship is the result or flourishes when we allow room for disagreement. Now look at verse 12, it's heavy stuff. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren... And it was not at all his desire to come now. But he will come when he has opportunity. Now, let me tell you what he's saying. I told Apollos, Apollos, you need to go over to Corinth. And, and Apollos said, I don't want to go to, to Corinth. I just, you know. Now, now here's, the, you know, here's this uh, guy that we have put on this, you know, as the king, so to speak. The religious uh, pope, so to speak, Paul. And yet... When Apollos said, I don't want to go to Corinth, Paul said, okay, you can go when you have opportunity, which the word means when you feel like it's the right time for you to go. Now what we like to do is that we like to squeeze people into the molds that we have for them. We like to stereotype people and put them in little boxes, you know. And we like to make people like we think they ought to be. And the greatest thing that ever happens in a church is when you are encouraged to be and become the person God uniquely made you to be and to become. And that's the glory, I think, of discipleship. It's a person giving you the freedom to become the person God meant for you to be and leading you to become that person. And that is discipleship. It's not changing folks to fit the pattern that you think they ought to fit. Now, everybody here, I suppose, in this church, maybe, has an opinion about how everybody ought to live their life. Southern Baptist Convention's meeting this week. No, the, long, the, 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 the closer that thing gets to the meeting, the more I wish I were there. I'm, I've never gotten into that kind of stuff that goes on by the way, I heard Dr. Hobbs say the other day that there's been some new thing introduced into, into, the, into Christianity the last four years, and that's hardcore, raw, unadulterated politics. I never, never got, never gone for that kind of stuff before. But I kind of wish uh, I were there just to kind of, you know, sit back and watch the circus. Because you know what's happening 
in, 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 in Southern Baptist life and it's filtering down to, to, I think, to the lower levels. And that is we got a bunch of folks who think they know what everybody else ought to do. What they ought to think, what they ought to believe, what they ought to teach, what they ought to say, and what they ought to preach. It's my firm conviction that what the New Testament encourages is the priesthood of all believers where a man finds his own identity, his own personhood, his own identity before God and is encouraged to live that out by somebody who really loves him and cares for him. Does that make any sense? You don't get many amens here. You've got to kind of roll your own. You don't have to, you get your, you got to get your own stuff. Let's pray together. Father, it is true that the way you desire to do it is just one person winning another to win another to win another. Just like you did, pouring your life into someone else to allow him to pour his life into another person. And Lord, I pray that at the heart of each of us and at the heart of this church is a desire to disciple men and women to a walk with Christ that's meaningful and effective. And thus... Accomplish your plan for the world. That is, that every man, woman, boy, and girl would know Jesus Christ and grow into His likeness. Bless this moment of invitation, I pray, in the name of Christ and for His sake. Now, there are three invitations. The first invitation is for you to place your life in Jesus Christ by faith, trusting Him and Him alone for your salvation to come and declare your faith in Jesus alone. A crisis decision to trust Jesus Christ. Second invitation is for church membership. As God leads you to place your life and service here. Or the third is to come and say, I want to begin that walk, that, that process of being, becoming a discipler. Or to come and say, I want to become a disciple. Is God leading you to make a decision? That's the, those are the people we'd invite to come as we stand to sing.